Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Athletic. Reds, Tony Evans here with Walk On, your Liverpool podcast from The Athletic. The international break is almost over and the Reds return at Wolves this weekend. So we'll look forward to that trip to Molyneux as well as answer your questions. And here to do that we've got James Pearce and Keith O'Neill. As ever, let's start with those three words. And again, I always say it every week, Kiva, it's your favourite part of the show. So let's hear what you've got to say. So much so that I was going to sing this, but I won't. So I'll just say bring it back. James, are you going to sing some words for us? No, I wouldn't put anyone through that. But on a similar vein, proper stuff back. Yeah, I, I, for me, it's ready for action. And let's see what they're saying over on the Walk On Podcast Facebook group. Andrew Bell, hurry up Saturday. Mark Patterson, Mo ain't going. Gary Rivers, another win, please. And Paul William, teeny on VAR. A bit of paranoia creeping in already. To join our community of listeners on Facebook, just search Walk On Podcast and join the group. Well, the transfer window's over. What, what, what's going to come next? Schmatiker was appointed on a short-term basis, James. Um, what do you make of his work? And do you think there's a possibility of a, long, a longer-term appointment? Um, <clears throat> well, it, it was certainly a baptism of fire for him, wasn't it? Come in in such a a turbulent summer i think what was it six six senior professionals moving on when you had you know the four the four guys who obviously left when their their contracts expired at the end of last season in cater uh, and oxlade chamberlain milner and firmino and then you know the the upheaval caused by the saudi interest and in losing henderson and fabino um, in the middle of pre-season. So, um, yeah, he's had a lot to deal with, with the, the gaps that have need, needed filling. Um, not without its challenges along the way, of course, after what happened with Caicedo and, and Lavia and missing out on, on those signings to Chelsea. But I think when you actually look at the window as a whole, I think Liverpool have come out of it pretty well. Especially, you know, getting that Gravenberch deal over the line on deadline day, getting everything completed, you know, fourth new face, on the back of McAllister and Zobersley, you know, I think everyone's already already loving the sight of, of them in a Liverpool shirt. Um, you know, Wataro Endo clearly probably needs a bit more time to settle in, which is understandable. Um, so, so yeah, I think, you know, you, you Schmadka, it's, it's very difficult to properly evaluate his input because he's part of a team, isn't he? In terms of, you know, there's other senior figures that are involved in these deals. Of course, when it comes to finances, you know, Mike Gordon holds the purse strings, you know, in terms of a lot of the work, the groundwork that goes into deals. You know, Dave Fallows and Barry Hunter are 
are massively involved as well. And then you've got, you know, Jurgen Klopp giving his kind of pitch to prospective signings as well. So, but yeah, I think probably no coincidence that three of the four signings Liverpool made um, have obviously come from the Bundesliga. Um, and, and yeah, I think certainly the feedback I've had is that, that, that Schmack has been a decent addition to the, to the team. Yeah. I mean, Kiva, the players that have come in after so much angst during the summer, I mean, I'm quite happy. Well, you're going to be happy with the start of the season like that, aren't you? Yeah, I was thinking about it and I didn't know what word to use for Liverpool's transfer window because it was kind of going for like excellence and I was like maybe a centre-back would have made it excellent and no transfer window is perfect. I think the ages of the midfielders is in particular, I think, important. You've got Gravenberg, obviously, who's 21. Then Soboslai's 22. McAllister's 24. Then you've got a bit of experience in Endo at 30, which I think helps sort of just bridge that gap a little bit for Liverpool's midfield. And as all the players departed at the end of the season, and then, as James mentioned, what happened with Saudi interest and everything that happened there, there was a dip, wasn't there, with the Kaiseido stuff and all everything around that, Lavia as well. And it just felt like, oh God, Liverpool's transfer window just could be, end, like, you know, we could end up talking about it in, you know, not a great way. But actually, Liverpool right now are in a great place. Not only, you know, the start of the season has been good, but also what they did in the window. Now, I think moving forward, we'll look back on this window as, you know, vitally important, more so as the season goes on. And in particular, obviously, as if it does continue in the way, I think Liverpool fans are hoping it will. And you'd keep climbing the table and stay up there because last season was quite painful, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I said at the time, I'll say it again, you know what? The best thing out in this window is Liverpool didn't pay £100 million or more for Caicedo. I tell you what, that would have been an act of madness. Talk about madness. James, Julian Ward's reported to be working on deals in an advisory role. What's all that about? No, not not true. I'm told. I'm not sure where that's where that's come from. I think I know it's um, it's come up on social media, but people I've spoken to at the club um, <clears throat> have said that's not the case. That he's he's currently still officially on on gardening leave, um, and that um, you know effectively his work. For the club ended with the with the Alexis McAllister deal, um, so uh, so no, I, yeah, I did see that the rumor mill had gone into overdrive on that one, but no, I'm not. You know, I've I've, I've seen even suggestions he's going to be coming back into his old job again so soon after leaving it, but um, no, I'm uh, I'm reliably informed that's not the case. Well, let me ask you about the, the other former sporting director, Michael Edwards. Him and Ian Graham are setting up a. Ludo Nautics consultancy. When I read Ludo Nautics, like a number of other words come looks at me, you know, sort of um I thought lunat lunat lunatic no no, surely not. Um but I mean, you know, is there any possibility that JWH will be on the phone to them going, Ah, oh, bad consultancy? <laughs> I d I don't know. I mean it, it's um it's certainly an interesting one because we know that Michael Edwards has had all kinds of opportunities to get back into football um since he since he left liverpool of course you know his his stock was so so high having negotiated you know the vast majority of the deals for those players that that won the champions league and the premier league um and that double act with Klopp, 
you know, worked, worked so effectively. Um, but yeah, he's, he's, and I think, I think you, you could kind of, kind of sense previously that he was reluctant to take on a similar role to sporting director at a rival club. And now he's going down this route of setting up his own consultancy business with, with Ian Graham, who of course, Again, someone with an incredibly hot, you know, good reputation from the, the body of work he put together at Liverpool with, you know, which was a kind of groundbreaking data unit, really, in terms of how much they relied on that and how much it worked. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think the two of them probably aren't going to be short of clubs coming knocking on the door asking for their services. Whether, whether Liverpool turn out to be one of them, I'm not, not quite so sure. But, um, but yeah, I think it's certainly, it's, it's it's a move that only confirms, I think, probably what what you know some of us knew already was that that Michael Edwards won't be won't be kind of stepping back onto his Anfield throne anytime soon. Hi everyone, David Ornstein here, and I want to tell you about the Athletics' new bite-sized podcast, The Daily Football Briefing. If you're one of those people who are just too busy for a regular-length podcast in the morning, this is right up your street. In just over 10 minutes, we'll bring you bang up to date with the biggest stories in football all before you've finished your first coffee of the day. It'll be Matt Slater on a club's ongoing takeover saga, our club experts reflecting on big overnight matches, and let's be honest, me explaining those transfer stories that just won't go away. That's the Daily Football Briefing, every weekday morning, available wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For the latest subscription offers, head to theathletic.com forward slash Liverpool pod. Okay, it's time for us to get into your questions here on Walk On. Remember, if you want to get in touch with us at any time, you can email walk-on at theathletic.com. Well, we've got Valdemar Gerbang, and I've got that wrong, I'm sorry. Well, that's a pretty cool name if you ask me. And Johnny which is a bit less cool in its own way. A book got in touch with a question on a similar theme. What happens in January regarding the Mohamed Salah situation? Kiva, it'd be absolute madness to sell them, wouldn't it? I think so. I just, I, It will rumble on, by the way, and it will still be a thing. Come January, we'll be talking about this and probably talking about it for the next few months until, you know, whatever happens. Because he'll have, in January, he's had a year and a half left on his current deal. So you'd imagine even if, you know, that clock is ticking down, we're going to be talking about Mohamed Salah anyway because he's going to be scoring goals and, you know, now he's getting plenty of assists as he always has. I think it's just going to be something that we just keep talking about and that won't really go away. I think for Liverpool to lose him this season, especially just because of the start and how well it's sort of built into this sort of feeling of, of optimism and they managed to not sell him, even though, you know, ridiculous um, money was sort of flying around and, and different things, I think was a good thing for Liverpool because you, you can't replace Mo Salah. There's no player in the world that could do what he does and what, is, what he's been doing for Liverpool for 
the past few seasons and since he joined in, was it 2017? He's been ridiculous. His numbers are ridiculous. And I just don't think you can bridge that gap. You know, he scores in such important moments and um, just is so consistent at what he does. He's hardly ever injured. And I just think to lose him this season would be not great for Liverpool, whatever, you know, happens and wherever they are in the table come January. But then, you know, does it on the opposite side of that, do the owners look at it as if it's 200 million and you could rebuild the squad even further, then, you know, we'll give them something to think about. And it, I don't think it would shock us now that it's become the, like a topic that, you know, we will continue talking about it, but also that it could actually happen. James, I'm a firm believer in cashing out if it's the right time for you. I'm not so sure this is the right time. And I'm also a believer that sometimes you have a a standout player who, if you move them on and sort of, they kind of suck in all the attention. The um, I'm thinking about like sort of Zaha at Crystal Palace, who, you know, um, was obviously the centre of everything we do. And more recently, Abby Kane at Tottenham. Now, we don't know how Tottenham will proceed, but early indications is that the team is better without the best player they had. But I don't think that's the situation with Liverpool. I think uh, everyone, well, a lot of people contributing. It's not Salah. While he's brilliant, he's not central to everything they do. I just think January wouldn't be the right time. What's your view? Yeah, I, I think we can pretty much discount January. I, I don't I don't see anything changing in January. I think a couple of reasons, really. One was the big push from Saudi at the back end of the window was because they were desperate for Mo Salah to to play for Al Ittihad in the Club World Cup, which is in Saudi Arabia in December. So, um, you know, I think that certainly that ship has sailed now. Um, and also, let's not forget, Salah's not even going to be around in January. He's got the Africa Cup of Nations um, coming up, which is <clears throat> going to take him out of action till likely to be early February anyway. So, yeah, I don't, I, you know, and it, it just, why would you possibly even think about you know, losing someone of that stature midway through a season when when hopefully as well Liverpool will still be banging the mix to to win things this season. So I, I think it's very much now on the back burner till next summer. And it's more a case of, you know, what kind of offer is forthcoming next year and at, you know, and at what kind of price do you do you think, right, well actually, yeah, but he's got one year left on his deal. It'd be thirty two years of age. You know, does that then make sense? And it also gives you a lot of time in terms of lining up a possible replacement. Yeah, definitely. So where are they going to look in January? The centre-half situation needs to be addressed. I think that would be a wise time to do what they need to do wherever they are. You know, I think a centre-back would have been great. And I think having Van Dijk and Karate missing as they were recently kind of showed. I mean, Joe Gomez and Joel Matter played well together and, and Gomez... A resurgence for him couldn't have come at a better time. But if one of those players gets injured and then, you know, another, then you can't. You're down like, to Enzo you know. then, aren't we? Well, you're down to Jarrell Kwanzaa, who's obviously become fifth choice centre back. Not quite out of nowhere if you've been watching Academy football for the past few seasons. Obviously, he's an England youth international as well. But you get into that sort of. You know, like Reese Williams and Naf Phillips, the role they played for so long of being like on the periphery and kind of the emergency centre back. And it'll be an amazing experience for Drell, you know, to continue in the way he is. And, you know, you could quite easily see from the quality he's got 
him to go on and play for Liverpool. I've always seen that in him, you know, watching him um, at the academy. But in terms of just, you're just hoping, aren't you, that an injury doesn't happen or something else because it just, I think it does feel like they just needed another defender just to have that bit of security. But you'd hope that Van Dijk and Canate or whoever it is, if Gomez's resurgence continues, that they can just, you know, crack on and it won't be a worry because centre-backs are always the players that I think you just need to get that partnership strong. It just feels like one of those connections in the team where you have to play the same players next to each other more. So it just feels like that relationship is so important for them to be almost at one with each other and know where they are, what they're doing. And as we've seen last season, you know, Liverpool's defending at times was pretty woeful. I think this season there's been like moments of that, glimpses of, oh no, they're not defending like that again. But they've been good moments on the whole as well. So I think that would probably be the area. And then as, you know, looking forward, Liverpool have to keep building. Like it's this, you know, wheel that never stops spinning. They have to keep building to where do they want to be next season and the season after that? Because they built now a pretty young squad. And is it about getting a little bit of experience in there or, you know, continuing to build in, in the way that they have done in, in the past few transfer windows but January is always a weird one because it feels like it's usually quite quiet unless something just happens like Cody Gakpo or Lewis Diaz the season before that. Yeah James I mean Kwanzaa looks like he's a great prospect but they do need someone with a bit more seasoning in that in the defensive ranks something to bring in. Do you see that happening? Um I think whether it happens in January will probably be dictated by what happens between now and then. Um, you know, clearly Liverpool made the decision that they feel as if they've got enough in that department for the season ahead, which I think everyone would agree represents something of a gamble, not so much in terms of numbers, but more in terms of like the injury records of Canate, Matip and, and Gomez, especially. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's Liverpool's position really on recruiting a centre-back didn't change throughout the summer. It was right from the start. It was, it's not a priority. You know, we're rebuilding an entire midfield. That is where our focus lies. But if the right player with the right profile at the right price comes up, we'd, we'd go for it. You know, obviously there was Colwell at Chelsea that they were keeping a close eye on what was going to happen with his contract situation. You know, when he signed that new deal at Chelsea, that, that killed that one off. And then they didn't didn't pursue anyone, so it's you know that shows you that Klopp's faith in the ones that are there already. But the club also know that they need you know succession planning with Joel Matip out of contract next summer. Fully expect him to to move on in twenty twenty four. So it's just a case of what do you do? Do you do you sign someone in January that might potentially have six months to bed in before Matip leaves, or do you get through until May um, and then address it? Um, and then, of course, you know, next summer you've got the situation with, you know, Van Dyke will be down to his last year and there'll, there'll be a decision to make there as well. So I think, you know, in the, over the last, what, probably 18 months, two years, the entire front line and midfield has been rebuilt. And then, you know, certainly in the next few windows, the focus is going to be very much on the, on that back line. Next up, Mark Batterson on Facebook asks... And that's a question I've been asking myself, to be honest. When Thiago is fit again, what role is he most likely to play? I mean, it doesn't feel like 
he fits in this midfield. I don't know. Kiva, does it feel like that to you? I think this midfield is looking pretty set, isn't it? And settled. And there's now sort of this question of when Thiago gets back, can he get back into the midfield? And where will he play and what will he do? Because it just feels like with Sobersly and McAllister, they've just built up this instinctive partnership and are doing so well. And then you can throw Curtis Jones and whoever else in, into the mix. Endo's obviously there now as well. But I think with Thiago, his best quality is just putting him in there and, and letting him do Thiago things because I still think he's capable of playing passes and doing things on a football pitch that not a lot of footballers in world football are. It is just that injury record, which has probably let him down during his Liverpool career. I think I look back to that season when Liverpool could have won the quadruple and I do think we would look at Thiago's time at Liverpool a lot differently had they clinched the Premier League or Champions League that season for the role he played in that. But I do think it will be looked back on as, you know, injuries got the better of his Liverpool career almost because there's so many moments and games and you could name so many little passes. We've all got that one moment that sticks out, whether it's the Porto goal or whatever else, you know, the absolute clinic against Man United at that time. There's so many moments that it's just like he is world-class and you can absolutely see why Liverpool wanted him. But I don't think it's worked out in the way the fans wanted it to completely, that Thiago wanted it to completely because he's a player, you know, has won so much in his career. Barcelona, Bayern Munich, you know, come with all of this prestige and wanted to bring that to Liverpool and I think did and seems to be someone that really is just gets on well with everyone and, and fits in well. But now there's like, does he fit into the midfield? Of course he does because he's Thiago. But in reality, I'm, I'm not quite sure how it works now for him at Liverpool. But if he gets back fit, you wouldn't be shocked to see him in a game and, and serving up a clinic anytime soon. But obviously, it's it's whether he can get back fit and, and have that run of games and have that just run in training where he can, you know, convince Klopp and whoever else that, you know, he should start or, you know, be... Be featuring again, James. You know my view on Thiago. It's like my view is it was all too much side to side. He's got the ability to split defenses, and he didn't do it enough. And um, and I think that was in part because of the system, and because in part because he was trying to work so hard to to play in the way the midfield did, and the midfield was really something to be bypassed at the time. And so I don't think it's all his own fault, you know. And I'm admirer, but is he is he just sitting there now waiting for? waiting for his next move. Certainly expect it to be his last season at the club. I think I think um you know we we knew there was interest from Saudi Arabia in in Thiago this summer but he made it clear that wasn't something that interested him. That 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 interest actually predated Henderson and Fabinho being pursued and ultimately leaving but yeah T- Thiago's people were adamant all along that no 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 he's he's going nowhere he wants to he wants to stay put for his his last year at Liverpool and then yeah I would I would expect him to leave on a free in the summer of 2024 I think where he fits in is is tricky isn't it because I think he must have watched the opening weeks of the season and probably asked himself that very question because when you look at the the energy and dynamism in that midfield and he is a you know he is a he is a lovely footballer to watch, as Kiva said. Like you can all we all think of moments where you just go, "Wow!" You know, like very few people can do with a football what he can do. Yeah, 
I also agree with you, Tony, that there's been times when he has been guilty of slowing things down a bit and having six touches when only two could would have sufficed. Um, and then when you look at the impact of McAllister and Zabozlai, um, you know, Gravenberch hasn't as yet to feature. You know, you've got Endo getting his feet under the table. You've got Curtis Jones and, and Harvey Elliott. You know, he, there's a lot of competition in there. And you think, you know, he, the Europa League games, you know, may may well be a good opportunity for Thiago to get game time, which obviously isn't the way he would have Wouldn't been. Wouldn't it be brilliant if he bossed the Europa League? <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's. I mean, that the one thing with let's let's be honest, a pretty uninspiring group in that Europa League. I know, I know, you love your strange trips, Tony, but um, there's the the calibre of opposition in that Europa League. I, I think will lend itself to Klopp holding back. You put the markers like, on them now. You, you got, we're not getting out of the group. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, it's. I almost think you have to look upon Thiago as a luxury between now and May. I think. That's the positive from my point of view is where previously we were probably anxiously awaiting news of is he going to be available for the weekend? Has he come through another week unscathed? Now it's almost like a bonus if he is. I mean, he he obviously, he was supposed to be back before the international break. Klopp said he'd had a setback in training with his hip. Then Klopp said before the break that he thought that this two-week hiatus would allow him the opportunity to get back fit again. Um, so hopefully hopefully we will see him in that Europa League opener um, next week if he can get enough training under his belt. But um, yeah, it's definitely definitely the start of the long goodbye for Thiago. Our final question comes from Jonathan Tidecott. With the ever-increasing likelihood that the Ampere Road stand is going to soon be finished, what are the chances that Fenway Sports Group could redevelop the Sir Kenny Dowdley stand? Uh, does that misprint? Does he mean the Kemlin Road? By compulsory compurchasing the row of houses, and could you see the cop being expanded if Walton Breck Road is redirected? Over? If we move from the Athletic Football Podcast, Walk On, to Liverpool City Council Podcast. <laughs> the architects. <laughs> at the bottom line, and I think... Jonathan is is asking, how much further development is feasible at Anfield? Kiva, do you think? Do you think there's much? Because it, it it seems an unlikely set of circumstances. That yeah, I do think about the cop and think you know could they sort of push it back a little bit further closer to the road? But then obviously you've got the Albert Pub, and I don't doubt they'll want to move. And you know that just feels such a part of the ground almost, doesn't it? When you step in there, you know you. You're in the Albus and, and Liverpool's grounds right behind there. You could build round so, and have just part of the stadium. Part of the ground. I mean, that would be pretty sick, to be fair. Um, but yeah, if you've not visited the Albus, it is one of those pubs that you've got to tick off around the ground, definitely. Um, just sitting beneath the cop and you can just sort of feel that energy there. Um, but yeah, I always wonder, like, could you just make it like a bit steeper, a bit of an incline and sort of push it back and sort of obviously... I think safe standing would maybe help as well in terms of getting more seats in. They make it into more of a yellow wall, but obviously the the red wall or whatever else, you know, like push it back a bit further. Because I think like what Tottenham have done with their stadium and how one of their stands just looks like it goes on forever. But I just don't know if Liverpool will be able to do that and with the space that they've got. Because if you've stood outside the cop or even um, the Kenny Dalglish, as it's now called, there's not a lot of room there, is there? So would they have to cut, take that road away? Would they be allowed? Like, it sounds like a lot of a headache and planning permission. But I get it because the main stand, 
you know, the improvements of that was incredible. Like if you'd been in the old main stand, it was, you know, not up to scratch. Now it is obviously when the Anfield Road end's done as well. So that's, you know, two out of two, I guess, in terms of being redeveloped and modernised and brought into the, the future. So I think, you know, that it, they are the next questions and it would be great to see them both, um, you know, given a little bit of a little bit of love and TLC in the same way the other two stands have. James, did, I mean, because I suppose long term, if they can't exceed the footprint of the stadium as it is now, someone will start thinking about moves and things like that. I mean, it makes sense certainly for the council and Femway. To, and local planners to try and come to sort of agreement to keep the Anfield, but how feasible is it? I, I don't think it is particularly feasible that the Anfield goes any bigger than sixty-one thousand, which is what it well it should have been by now. Let's be honest. Um, but obviously, with the delays to the Anfield Road end, um, it may well be Christmas time now before it's it's fully fully operational and up to past that sixty thousand mark. But um, no, I mean going going back to when. Fenway Sports Group bought the the club, and you know, of course, it was one of the massive issues they inherited after all the you know the broken promises and the nonsense about a spade in the ground under Hicks and Gillette, and 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 on all the feasibility studies. You know, it, they were very clear that you know once they felt as if they had a plan to redevelop Anfield and retain that history and tradition, that there were only realistically two stages, and the, the first stage was obviously the main stand that completed in 2016 and then the Anfield Road <clears throat> to follow which is is obviously still um being completed as as we speak so yeah i think i i've never got the impression from speaking to anyone that they think it is realistic that the, the Sakeni stand or the cop for that matter is redeveloped because i think i think what 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 people have said to me is you have to factor in the cost versus, versus what you're likely to get back in terms of how much, how many more seats is realistic and where, where the Anfield road, um, you know, that made financial sense because, because I think what 80 million pounds and you're putting on, you know, 7,000 extra seats and a chunk of that, a hospitality that will, that will, you know, pay that back pretty quick. And with the main stand, I think you're looking at, what was it? 115 million, I think it cost. And, you know, and, and again, you know, the transformation there with bringing in, I think it's about an extra 15 million a year the, the main stand brings in. So you do the maths there and you think, well, actually, yeah, it doesn't take long for it to almost pay for itself. And I, I've always got the impression that just because of the logistical issues, um, that, yeah, that I think I would be absolutely amazed if Anfield goes any bigger than 61,000, certainly under these owners. Yeah, and you know, I think everyone's going to remember that match day income is still a shrinking proportion of overall revenue, and um, it makes it. And you, you kind of, as well, you don't want to lose the intimacy and the atmosphere of the stadium because that actually is attractive to TV. So I can't see there being any movement on that, and I think what it means is further down the line there'll have to be a decision. And it might be 15 years, so it might even be sooner. That has to be a decision whether you take the Tottenham approach and um, and uh, you know and, and rebuild the stadium on the footprint in a more efficient way, or you know 
what continues going on. And let's face it, in 15 or so years, there might be an empty stadium down by the docks, mightn't there? Steady. <laughs> You're listening to Walk On, brought to you by The Athletic. Simon Hughes, our international man of mystery, isn't with us this week because he's gallivanting around the continent. Well, actually, we do know where he is. It isn't a mystery. So let's hear what he's got to say. Hi, everyone. It's uh, Simon here. Sorry I can't be there today. Um, I'm in Amsterdam uh, researching Ryan Gravenberg's uh, background in the city. Um... So I don't want to give too much away because that piece will be going up later this week, I suspect, ahead of Liverpool's games with Wolves, where he may make his debut. He's obviously been in Kirby the last couple of weeks during the international break, much to the frustration of the Dutch national team bosses who wanted him to play for the under-21s. But he decided not to and wanted to prepare for and get himself in the best condition that he can do uh, for Liverpool's forthcoming Premier League and uh, Europa League campaign because he hasn't played a great deal over the last six to 12 months. Obviously, there's been quite a lot written about that, actually. Uh, certainly in Holland, you know, the, he's sort of fallen victim a little bit to a new regime in the in the Dutch FA system where any player who doesn't come or report for national duty for any other reason but injury is essentially banned for the next round of fixtures. Um this is a new thing that's been put in place because some of the people at the Dutch FA feel that, that, that sometimes it's too easy for players to pull out. Um, I know Ronald Koeman and Michael Reitziger have spoken at length about it before the uh, international friendlies. Um, I suppose from Ryan Gravenberg's position, he probably thinks that, well, if I haven't played that much, I need to get fitter. And the only way of getting fitter is by playing regularly for Liverpool and the only way of getting himself in a position where he could actually play for the first, uh, the Dutch national team instead of the under-21s would be to play for Liverpool well and, you know, push himself forward that way. I suspect he'll be on the bench against Wolves. I know Wolves had a difficult start to the season, but Molyneux is always a tricky place to go. Liverpool tend to win there, but it's always tight and it's usually by the odd goal as well. I don't see it really being any different, but I suspect uh, with with the Europa League campaign starting next week with a game in Austria, maybe Jürgen Klopp will be thinking about that for Ryan Gravenberg. I always think with uh, with with players coming into the country, it's sometimes a bit easy for them to make the debuts at home. So, or maybe in the in the you know in a European match, but we we will see. Just hoping for Liverpool. Uh, continue the form from before the international break. The break probably came at the wrong time, really, given how well Liverpool have been playing. But yeah, they're in a good place at the moment. Um, re- decent set of fixtures to sort of get back into the into the Premier League campaign. And a good opportunity next week as well, I would say, to, to try some of the players who haven't got so many minutes in the Europa League. So yeah, let's see. I, I think Liverpool are in a decent position, better position than I expected them to be before the start of the season. I have to admit that. I didn't see them... So to not just getting the results, but but playing as convincingly and, and as organised as they've been in midfield at certain times, particularly reacting to, to setbacks like sendings off. They, they, they've been very good in that in those situations. So a really good opportunity for Liverpool over the next few weeks with a game against Wolves uh, away and then the following weekend, West Ham at home, who've started the season well themselves. 
But two fixtures where you'd expect Liverpool really to take another six points, which would put them right in the mix going into the start of October, which um, I don't think anybody really saw, um, including myself, uh, at the start of August. Anyway, let's talk about our favourite kickoff time in all the world, the 12.30 on Saturday afternoon, which means you get up at the crack of dawn. Well, when when you live a journalist lifestyle, 12.30 is often the crack of dawn. But more to the point... Liverpool, the they dread that Saturday twelve thirty kickoff. I mean, they haven't won a twelve thirty game since I think, I think it was in the old second division, wasn't it, in nineteen fifty eight? It certainly wasn't last season. Yeah, it, um, and maybe it's more like the psychological thing. It feels like it. It feels like you don't win at Saturday twelve thirty, and it feels like the crowds aren't revved up, the players aren't revved up. It just feels like an alien time, Kiva. Yeah, last season it was three draws, three losses, and those defeats, like one was to Man City, that's okay, that happens. But I think the Forest and the Bournemouth defeats were just such big low points in Liverpool's season. And I think that is because the 12.30 on a Saturday, it just feels like everyone's watching it as well. Like, everyone's watching that game because, you know, you've hopefully had a nice slow Saturday morning and, you know, you're looking forward to the first game of the weekend if there's not been any on on Friday night because we all love a bit of Friday night football um, but yeah so it just felt like last season Liverpool just struggled to get going in games we're conceding you know made a lot early last season as well as we know but then it just felt like they just didn't have the power like they hadn't like you know woken up yet it was too early for them almost given that you know they, they seem to be struggling so much but I think that has been a bit of a recurring theme obviously they must have won um, twelve thirty kickoffs, but last season it was just like this thing, wasn't it? As soon as you seen that the time was twelve thirty, it was like, yeah, that's that's not going to be a a good performance from Liverpool, and that's the way it turned out to be. So hopefully, you know, they've had the break, and you know, players returning from an international duty away to Wolves is never particularly easy. Um, obviously they've struggled at the start of this season, so you'd imagine that Liverpool go there with a great level of confidence and can kind of put to bed that 12.30 case. James, I just I mean, it's compounded by the fact that Wolves last season was one of the most gruesome performances of the, the whole campaign. Um, but, I mean, in terms of being ready for it and personnel, um, you know, how close are they to being a full strength? And do you think the... Do you think they can put to bed this idea of the early kickoff being bad for Liverpool? I hope so. Yeah, I mean it's it's not ideal, is it? I think having the twelve thirty kickoff straight after the international break, because especially when you're relying on you know the South American lads getting back, you know it will be Thursday before before they really regroup at, at the AXA training centre. Um, obviously you've got, you know, Darwin Nunes and, and Diaz and, and McAllister, um, and Allison, of course. So it's, um, yeah, I, I think, I think that is a, that is a concern going into the weekend because of course, you know, you, they get back on Thursday, probably don't even train. So you've only got the one session Friday, which is the day before the game. And then you're traveling down to the Midlands. So, um, yeah, I think in general, Liverpool's record under Klopp in twelve thirties is actually pretty decent. But it was just last season was it was just one disaster after another, isn't it? When you think 
you know, from Fulham away on the opening weekend, how error strewn that performance was, you know, the lifeless games against Everton and Chelsea, um, you know, and those defeats at Forest and City and, you know, Bournemouth was, was absolutely horrific so soon after demolishing Manchester United the week before. So, um, so yeah, it's, um, I just, yeah, it's, it, it's certainly, you know, it, it feels like Liverpool have got some kind of, um, you know, a, a bit of a point to prove on the weekend going back to Molyneux as well, because you're right, Tony, that was about as bleak as it got in the whole of last season. You know, Liverpool were absolutely abject that day. You know, they could have been 4-0 down after about 12, 15 minutes. It was, it was that laughable how, how poor they were. Um, it was, you know, right in the middle of that, that rut where you kind of were beginning to think, well, you know, where does this even stop? It, it was, it felt like it was almost getting out of control. So it's nice to be going back there in much different shape, you know, 15 games unbeaten if you factor in the end to last season. Um, but I think it's a real test, although Wolves have had some pretty difficult results so far. And obviously they had the upheaval, didn't they, in pre-season with losing, you know, the manager going and, you know, Gary O'Neill going in there at short notice. Um, John mentioned Gary O'Neill in 1230s. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, you know, and I, you know, I saw them, they were very unfortunate not to get something at Old Trafford when that ludicrous um, penalty decision didn't go in their favour late on when Anana cleaned, cleaned out, I think, was it Dawson? I think one of the, the centre-halves. And um, so, um, so yeah, they, they won at Goodison as well, didn't they, recently? Um, although quite a lot of teams seem to be doing that at the minute. Um, oh, when you criticised me earlier. <laughs> <laughs> you've, 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 uh, you've led me astray. Um, so, so yeah, and some, and obviously some, some big decisions for, for Klopp in terms of selection wise, because I think they're waiting on Canate, you know, the hope was that Canate would be fit and I desperately, you know, I hope that is, that is the case because I don't think Trent's going to be ready. I think Trent's probably more likely to be back the following week. So you've got a situation there where you're probably going to need Joe Gomez to play right back. So you need, you need Canate really coming back in. Alongside Matip with Van Dyke having to serve the the extra game for his suspension, otherwise you know we will be looking at a full debut for Gerald Kwanzaa, who you know I think he's a very very gifted young player that's that's you know is is getting minutes on merit because he he massively impressed the staff in preseason, but it would be a big ask to throw him straight in for his first start with just a couple of substitute appearances under his belt. Well, let's not end on a negative points of view. After last year, this podcast was really, it was a well of misery, wasn't it? We tried to make the best of it, isn't it? Self-help group. Yeah, it was therapy. Yeah. One of the great things about the start of this season is that we're all excited again about it. We're all, we feel like they're on the march. And I think, I think that's a really important change. And I, you know, personally, I think they're in a good situation, even with Wolves, Wolves have plenty of ability there, but I think we've got the firepower and the midfield, even if there are issues at the back, to overcome them. So that's it from this week on Walk On, your Liverpool podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Thanks to James and Kiva and you two for joining us. We'll be back next Wednesday before the start of the Europa League adventure. We'll catch you then. The Athletic.